0: You are listening to Noise Extra. And here is part two of our conversation with John Duncan. So after Japan, you had to Amsterdam. What was the impetus for that move and how did that come about? And tell us about a little of your experiences in Amsterdam.
1: In Japan, I got married and my wife was directing documentary videos of formula one car races the company that she was working for was opening an office just outside of amsterdam where she and a crew would go to the european formula one car races and because they moved her there and because we were married they were they moved me there so that's how i got there and then one of the really sort of pivotal moments for me was was a, a documentary that she decided that she wanted to make. No, I'm getting ahead of myself. She went into a monastery in Thailand. She, she had a sort of moment of existential crisis. And a mutual friend of ours suggested that she go to a monastery in Thailand and spend a month there. When she was there, she uh, got the inspiration to make this documentary about uh, a hill tribe that she uh, came in contact with. The It was a tribe called the Hmong, uh, who live in Thailand, Yunnan, China, uh, Cambodia, this whole area around the Golden Triangle. She brought me there, uh, and uh, I was I was there to to record sound for this for the crew that she set up to record this. And uh, while I was there, uh, I decided I wanted to go into the monastery as well. At a certain point, the recording sessions. Or of this documentary had had wrapped, and I had a chance to go into this into this monastery. So I went into the monastery for a month, and that was truly eye opening. That's what the Amsterdam time came to be for me was exploring consciousness in in ways that that were new to me. This time in the monastery sparked my interest in meditation. And, and, and uh, I, I, started, I started meditating uh, not with, as a religion, but as a sort of uh, exploration. Um, but I was doing it more or less on my own. When I got to the monastery, it was guided, and the the abbot of the monastery would give us uh, individual sort of suggestions of things to do. In the end of this month, part of the normal process of this is to uh, stay awake meditating for several days without sleep.
0: And were you able to do that? Yes. Do you recall how many days or approximately?
1: The first time was three days. The second time was five days.
2: Wow. And this is all in one place, seated. No, um, the first time
1: was in Thailand for a month. Mm. And then at the end of that month, I was practicing basically nonstop for three days. No food was brought to the door. So, you know, I didn't see anybody. I didn't go anywhere. I stayed in the room meditating for uh, for several days. Um, and that basically gave me uh, tools that I hadn't had before to uh, do this kind of exploring. And that's where Maze came in. Be- because uh, I just... Uh, when you're in a room you don't know when it will end you're in the room you're you're sort of stuck there you don't know when it's going to end so what happens to you when you're there in total darkness what, what happens to your mind what happens what do you experience when you are in that kind of situation. In that case, people sort of divided into two factions. One group hated me and wanted it to end and did everything they could to distract themselves by filling the room with sound, by uh, just doing whatever they could to distract themselves from themselves. The other side became quiet and went into their own uh psyches and started started sort of exploring that as a unique experience to be in this place in total darkness and not knowing when it's going to end. To, to these people it was sort of an opportunity. To the to the people who hated it, it was torture that they wanted that they they didn't expect and Wanted to end as soon as possible. Any, in any case, uh, the 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 experiences of meditation uh, inspired that this kind of exploration of what happens when you are uh, left with uh, just with your own mind. And it's meditation in that way. And this experience of Maze was a bit like a kind of portal. Things that I learned from from those experiences, I'm still working on. I'm still working with. This had a big influence on the music that I make.
0: And what would you say that influence was? And what recordings did you see that influence starting to show itself on?
1: Palace of Mind was a, a major one. Tap internal was another one where I was using the sounds that were generated by the computer, like uh, programs that are, I was taking computer programs that were not intended, were intended for other things, but they were translated into sound. what did that sound do to me as a listener what sort of emotional responses did i have to these sounds this that's how i start tap internal was about making music generated from the computer but intended to sort of encourage the listener to start a kind of internal examination journey if you like that's what that's what my music is has been about since then it's, it's about sort of encouraging or seducing this effect in people who are listening to sort of look within uh ourselves and sort of uh explore what we
3: find. I can see a clear parallel in something like Maze and this this line of thinking to the performance that I participated in in 2000, which was, I believe, the third time you'd done it, uh, Voice Contact. Yes,
1: absolutely. Yes.
3: The first two times being in in luxury hotels, and this third time was at the uh, Windsor Art College in a in like a large yes. room that they had sort of cordoned off. And I, I yeah. talked about this in our on our dark market broadcast episode a bit, but you talked about consent and choosing to experience this thing. And I went with two other people, my girlfriend at the time and, uh, my friend Prevere, who I believe, you know,
1: of course, send greetings.
3: I I will, I will. And we, uh, we all went to this together, but I was the only one who participated. And so when you said earlier that choosing not to and you leave with sort of the knowledge that you didn't do it and that that also maybe being part of the experience or part of the thing that, that you're putting yes. forth, because it was a very unusual circumstance. You know, I, I was excited to see you perform. You did perform a concert, which we'll talk about in a minute as well, because that was also done in uh, near total darkness in a room full of people. Right. But this experience was, of course, going into a room, uh, being told to disrobe in front of a, a mirror. And there was just like a tub there to put your your clothes and belongings in, going right. through a black heavy curtain and then another heavy curtain to into a door. And then you're in a, a room that's been sealed off of all light. And right. there's sound in there swirling around and you can't quite tell where yep. you are, where you're heading. You're not moving. Uh, closer to or further from anything. It's not like, oh, there's a speaker over there because the volumes are changing and swelling and so the placement in the room is even hard to tell until you feel a wall (laughs) or you feel something else.
1: Did you know that I was in there?
3: I heard afterwards and I was wondering and I've actually sort of always wondered because, you know, I I hear, but that's that's secondhand knowledge. I didn't know and I... I want to say there was someone after the fact that said, "Oh yeah, he's in there with night vision goggles," or there's something like this going on. Like there was all this sort of speculation as to what might have been going on. I didn't know if you were in there in some sort of DJ booth or you know, like not DJ booth, but some sort of booth or compartment and, and performing this stuff, or if it was pre-recorded. But you were there, you were there talking to me when I was in there as well, I believe, or it felt like that. There was voice.
1: Yes, the voice was recorded as I was in there nude. With every other participant who came in, and my part of that was to try to sense something coming from each one, each participant, and then decide to uh, how to respond to them while they're in the room. To some people that they're sort of moving along the room or holding holding one hand, flying out with into the room with the other hand trying to run into so and going along the wall so like um if somebody's doing that i would either move in the room to avoid them so it wasn't it was never clear to them if i was actually there or not if they were somehow, if I felt that they were somehow intimidated by this situation, but going and doing it anyway, I would wait until at, until they would come along and then suddenly they would feel there's somebody else in the room and then to see what
3: they would do. So what were the responses like?
1: I got groped a couple of times. Uh... I got groped by, uh, in Japan, I got groped by, uh, a couple of women. Um, in Stockholm, I got groped by, uh, the, 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 the way the, the kind of touch was very much a man's touch. Um, and. Different people responded every, the the responses turned out to be unique to each of the people who were in, who who decided to go in. Uh, One woman sat down in the middle of the room and just listened to the surround sound until it was over. And then... We had a conversation. She started the conversation. We never touched. We never saw each other. I still don't know anything about her, what she looks like, anything. I never did see her at all. Uh, There was somebody else, again, in Stockholm who uh, was he looked like a football player. He's massive muscles, like like the kind of person who would not be afraid of anything or anyone. Who pulled the curtain back, saw that he was entering into total darkness, and assumed that I was in the room. He said, "John, I can't come in here. I can't deal with this." He couldn't. Wow. He couldn't deal with not being able to see uh yeah it, everybody's response was was unique it was it was really interesting
0: great do you remember your response yeah
3: what'd you do i wandered around and listened and tried to sense what was going on in there uh i think after a while i found a wall and probably did hug that we're or, or trying to figure out the size and, and scope of the room. Also trying to deduce if anyone else was in there. But I, I remember sitting in there for a while to enjoy the sound because that was one of the things is like it, this is a, in a way, a, a personal, private John Duncan performance and experience, right? Like this was something that Absolutely. I I yeah. really wanted and, and wanted to experience. And it was such a, a cool opportunity to get. But I, I was... I was nervous it's it's a strange thing to go to a you know this this happened in Windsor, Ontario when I lived in Detroit, so I had to cross a border <laughs> to go to this event. Uh, I'm driving to a place I've never been before, going into a room, taking off all my clothes and walking through a couple doors into a completely pitch black room where there's sound happening. That's not a exactly a normal thing. Like I haven't done that before or since, right. That's not uh, a thing that we get the opportunity to do very often. So it took, uh, I think a little faith and courage on my part to do that. I was definitely a little nervous and intimidated. It's, you feel very vulnerable when you're stripping in front of a mirror and I'm not sure if the mirror was a part of it in other things, but in this place, there was, there was a mirror where you undressed. No, it wasn't. That that set it up differently to me as well. And it was also this thing of there's, there was nobody watching me undress. I could have gone in there fully clothed. I don't know if people, if people did that, but it seemed no, antithetical no, to the,
1: you would not have been able to do that. No, mm-hmm. no, you would not have been able to do that. There, in, in Stockholm, there was an, actually a guard who was, he had, he had the uniform of the hotel mm-hmm. he, and he was the person who was, uh, uh, watching your clothing and your belongings in this tub while you're in the room so he was the he was the security for your stuff
3: there was someone outside the door to the sort of yeah, exactly. entryway room when I did it
1: yeah exactly and that's why they're there they're they're there to make sure that your stuff is the same when you get back as it was when you put it in there and to make sure that when you go in there, you're not cheating.
3: <laughs> so uh, do you know or have any numbers or idea of how many people at the, the three different times this was performed, how many people showed up, but didn't participate, like change no. their minds? No. Well,
1: I have no idea. I have no idea. I stayed in the room all the time In in on all three occasions, I stayed in the room all the time. And how, how long were
3: these performed for?
1: 12, 14 hours. Yeah. So <laughs> no food, no nothing to drink, just staying in there and, and staying, trying to stay sensitive to uh, each person who came in.
2: Wow, it's your meditative practices have continued into these performances. Oh, absolutely, yes. Absolutely. And, and I can't imagine how you felt the first time you did it at this point. Do you feel nervous or is there just this curiosity at, at what you're about to experience?
1: I've never felt nervous. It's always, I've always had this curiosity. Yeah, I'm just really keen in interest to find out what will happen, uh, to find out things that i couldn't anticipate. That's what really interesting.
3: The following night after this, this was actually three days of you in, in Windsor brought out by Artsite. And it was, right. I was present for all three days. The first night was a, a QA and a with Slideshow. The next day was the performance and the third day was a, a live performance, like a, a concert, which was also in a pitch black room, but full of people this time and a much different experience than I'd had the day before. <laughs> because... You were, uh, if I remember correctly, you were above the room. There was like a a booth they had built up there.
1: Yeah, that's right. It was a cinema.
3: Yeah, that's right. Okay, so it was the projection Mm. booth then.
1: So, yeah, I was up there, and the point of that event was to make sure that there was nothing to see. So you would focus... And as a listener, you would focus on the sound going on.
3: Have you done other live performances in, in Total Darkness like this, or was this a one-off?
1: I did several. And then for one thing, it's very difficult to do that in a place where there's an audience because there are fire regulations. If, if, some, if a fire starts, then there have to be visible exit signs for people to see and go to to get out. And if all the lights are off, including those exit signs, then then uh, uh, it can cause a panic and it's illegal, basically. So for a while, I tried uh, giving people masks to put on and wear, but they didn't. A lot of people didn't like to do that. And I felt that it was at a certain point i just felt that it was like imposing something that um, was not letting people who are participating in this but giving them a chance to not giving them a chance to be themselves in a way so sort of like imposing restrictions and i after a while i just said i'm not learning anything more from this it's not going anywhere so So I stopped doing that. And what I started doing instead was really uh, concentrating on the sound itself and encouraging people to do that same sort of thing by using sound alone. So that if somebody is listening, if if they close their eyes and listen, the experience is something different from standing and watching or sitting and watching me stand over a mixing desk. Pushing faders and twisting knobs and, you know, it's not very interesting to watch.
3: We actually have a a longtime friend of the podcast who recently wrote us a message talking about how they had uh, been having trouble focusing and and paying attention to things. And they started wearing a blindfold at home when listening to music and found that it just completely opened up their, their perception of hearing audio. I like the idea of doing it in, in public settings, but it's very difficult, but at home, it's something that that any of us can do is just turn off the lights or put on something to cover our eyes and and just listen. So highly, highly recommend doing that. Mm
1: -hmm. Yes, you're absolutely right. And the great, and the great thing about that is that you are alone. So the experience is, is entirely yours. It's, it's, it's strongly recommended to, get yourself into some sort of a situation where you can really focus on what you're listening to.
2: Well, I've been dying to ask a question about the Nazca transmissions release. And that story was so fascinating that someone sent you sounds from the Nazca lines. However, you don't know who they were. It's a
1: mystery. And obviously the person who sent the material Preferred to leave it a mystery, which is fine with me. First of all, the, the name that came with a, um, an email that I got was Anton Duder with the umlaut over the U, who said that he had been a researcher at the Nazca site and had discovered that the Nazca lines generated audio. And he had made these recordings from his research, and he wondered if I would be interested in doing something with them, mixing them, making music out of them. And I said, well, I can't, I can't give you an answer until I hear them. So I got a a CD in the mail a couple of weeks after that with no return address. And the sounds were um, fascinating, however they were generated whether they were whether they were actually coming from the Nazca lines or not. The truth is I didn't really care. The, the thing was that the, the sound was interesting and I wrote back saying that I would that I would love to work with this and I'll start working on it. And I did. And then my life collapsed I changed house. I moved to Bologna uh, my My private life was, my personal life was completely turned upside down and it took a while. So finally I managed to get my studio set up again and this was the first thing I worked on. When I had several mixes ready to send, I wrote to this email address again and said, I have these, where do I set, what's, Give me an address to send these to, and I'll, I'll be happy to send them to you. I never got a response. And then my uh, uh, a few years later, my uh, email was hacked. And then I, I lost all of this, all, like 10 years worth of very carefully cataloged and categorized messages. Boom, it was all gone. So even the uh, so everything is gone. The only thing that I still have left are the are the sources that were sent in the mail on this CDR, and and then the, the sources that I used to make the mix.
2: Well, I'm glad all of the mystery is retained between the lines and the audio and this release. Whether
1: or not any of it is true, uh, it makes for a story that's fun to tell but whether or not any of it is true makes no difference to me whatsoever the thing that I, the thing that i find interesting about that project is the sound itself and what it does
2: well another sound that you captured that i'm absolutely fascinated by is when you were at the stanford linear accelerator tunnel how did that come about that is wild
1: There was a documentary on Amsterdam TV. It's called The Search for the Top Quark. And there was a contest between the Stanford Accelerator and CERN in Switzerland. While I was watching this, I was thinking, it would be really interesting to go to one of these places and see what kind of field recordings can be made there. Who do I know? Who do I know? Who do I know? Who do I know? And I remembered that there was a guy named Stephen Travis Pope who worked. As an instructor at Stanford. So I wrote to him and asked him if it would be possible to set up a tour of the Stanford Accelerator. And he said yes. He arranged the tour with uh, a guy who showed us around. I made recordings with the DAT recorder of different areas of the complex that he thought made interesting sound. So then I took that and started working with a friend whose name was Max springer max was way ahead of his time he had uh he had a computer setup that was only the kind of equipment that uh, an institution could afford and his his setup was made to uh process uh, process digital audio and um when Nobody else had this stuff when only when like music universities and Mm -hmm. research centers had this this level of equipment, he got it uh, and had it and said, please come and use it. I'll show you how to do it. He was extremely patient in showing me how to use a computer, how to edit sound on the computer. And for me, it was important that this project stay uh, electron based, that it would not be uh, magnetic or acoustic based. It, would, it always, the whole idea was about electrons, mm-hmm. the life of an electron. So it had to be edited uh, on a computer, and he showed me how to do it. He provided the equipment. And showed me how to do it. He was such an amazing, um, amazing human being. Uh, very unfortunately, he died uh, last month.
3: Oh, I'm oh, sorry to hear that.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a real loss. Yeah, he was, he was one of these really unsung uh, heroes of, of digital sound for that for certainly for for amsterdam people living in amsterdam friends living in in the netherlands his name is max springer
3: those recordings are on the crackling cd
1: yes and max and
2: i did that together
0: an incredible cd
2: yeah it's it's awesome
0: we reached out to some of our patrons and listeners And see if they had any questions for you. And I thought this was a really, really cool one. And it's about a performance that is also, I believe, the B side of the pleasure escape tape, the move forward performance. That's the B side, correct? Right. So this is what he wrote. With the 1984 performance of Move Forward, which ends in John setting a projection screen on fire, then spraying the remains into the audience with the fire extinguisher, it seems to have a positive ending. Was the intent of this and other performances to say, the horror is in the past, take the present in your own hands and give the subjects a kind of new perspective on life.
1: The purpose was less specific. The purpose is to wake up. That was the purpose of move forward. That was the purpose of basically everything I've done. So it's all about waking up and uh Sometimes uh, it takes a slap in the face to wake up. It takes a joke. sometimes it takes a caress. Uh, but the point is always to wake up for me to starting with me to wake up to wake my, to, to become awake myself and use, uh, use art, use whatever means necessary to just to become awake.
0: Another listener asked, how you see the difference between the early days, the old kind of noise cassette culture scene in the eighties versus getting to do things like working in a contemporary symphonic setting you know, later on in your work, what, what, what are some of the differences you see in how that operated in your place in that, in those worlds?
1: Oh, every project is totally different. Yeah. It's, and it's, it's, uh, it's exploring. That's what singing is for me now. I'm doing a lot of singing. I'm writing songs. I'm writing lyrics. I'm singing the songs and it's all about that it's all about waking up it's it's using that as a tool to wake up
0: and i think he might have been referencing one of those mm-hmm. vocal performances cuz we were watching some video of a vocal performance you were doing and it really is it's really incredible to see and that idea that you know from where you started to where you're where you keep evolving to something like singing being a you know more or less for you you know a, you know a a, a challenge a, a challenge right you know it's 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 something different something uncomfortable that you've thrown yourself into that
2: it's sonically nude
1: <laughs> very much so very much so the story behind that is that in 2013 I came very close to dying three times uh, Tom Brashan Frederick Nilson, Chip Chapman, and Dennis Duck, uh, and my brother saved my life. When they did that, especially when Tom, Frederick, Chip, and Dennis Ch- uh, saved my life, it told me that they felt that what I'd done up to that time had value, and that it that I should keep going what I'd done up to that time was all about taking risks. And I was trying to think what kind of risk can I take now that I haven't already done. And the only thing that I could think of was for one thing, there are two things. One thing was to, to make artworks that, that, uh, did not require money at all made with trash, made with, with uh, stuff that other people throw away. The other thing was to take away all of the devices that I found comfortable to work with and just use, just sing, use my voice. Starting with covers of uh, vocalists that I really admire and got some, like, uh, got inspiration from, but also the songs that were in a very real way autobiographical. And then Jim and Eiko and Joe Talia, touring with them in Japan, opened my mind to the possibility of going further than that, to starting to write my own songs. Starting to sing and and uh, write my own lyrics and and sing those instead of imitating or or trying to uh, bring something new to, to songs that already existed. So yeah, it's that's that's what I'm doing now.
3: I got to see you sing in uh, 2018 at that. Uh... Art show here in Los Angeles.
1: Oh, that was a nightmare. <laughs> that was a nightmare. Yeah, poor Tom. I just sort of sprang that on them with no preparation. And the the I have to say, the gallery did not expect to organize a, a concert event. So they did it really, really badly. And it, it didn't give us a chance to do any kind of rehearsal or just to get comfortable playing together. So we just, boom, we just went on stage all together. Maybe sometimes it worked, maybe sometimes it didn't. I'm sure sometimes it didn't. (laughs) But yeah, I remember it as being a a really uh, uh, uncomfortable experience, put it that way.
3: Another piece that I saw there and and got to hear you talk about actually at the the walkthrough before the the opening or during the opening was uh the dream house and the rage room yes for our listeners can you tell can you tell us about the dream house
1: the dream house is a structure of 495 shipping containers stacked on top of each other in the shape of a human brain and each one of these shipping containers is outfitted to represent or to invoke a certain state of consciousness that uh, correlates to the plate, the position of each one of these modules corresponds to the place that it would be found in the human brain. The rage room is the uh, place where the amygdala. Would be.
3: There was a representation of the rage room built at the gallery in Los Angeles, but it wasn't it wasn't shipping container sized, right? This is a, a larger room.
1: Yeah, they couldn't get a shipping container inside the, the gallery, so they they built this room and they they built it larger. Uh, but the idea was that these that these uh, that it was a, it was the center module in a structure that would be uh, basically seven stories high.
3: The dream house being made of shipping containers, was this an extension of the idea, or does the stress chamber live inside of this as well?
1: No, the stress chamber came before this idea, and and the stress chambers, yeah, yeah I love that. One shipping container with motors on three sides that create different kinds of vibrations that can be felt in only inside the container when the doors are closed and only if the participant is nude if the participant goes in nude and then there's one motor going then the container vibrates and it just the it the air feels thick when there are two motors going and, and I'm outside controlling these motors, so they're giving different like turning one, two, and three on at any given time like a varying between them. So if one is is going on, the air is thick, but if, if two are going on, that thickness becomes a sort of a plane that goes that moves up and down inside the container. If there are three motors going, that sense that sensation becomes, a sort of amorphous object that is moving through the container and through your body, wow. through the participant's body. And that's why they're nude inside. If they're, if, if anybody's wearing any kind of clothing at all, the clothing absorbs that, and it doesn't work. It only works if the, per, if the person inside is nude. So when I first did it, the people who were uh, sponsoring this festival were reluctant to do it. And they said uh, that it would be, it, it sounded like a torture chamber. And I said, let's see what happens. People are free to, to go in. Uh, they don't have, they're not forced. If they choose to go in, they go in under those conditions. Let's see if anybody accepts those conditions. I started early. Uh, I started like a half hour before the the festival opened. And from that moment, there was a line of people waiting to get in. (laughs) And again, it it went on for like 12 hours, nonstop. Where people, one person would go in after the other, after the other, after the other, and, it, and it, instead of uh, instead of being a torture chamber, it was something very sensual. And people realized that it, it's something really—it's uh, uh, an experience that that was sort of unique. So people would people came coming out would have this sort of glow on their faces so the people who were waiting in line just oh okay so now it's yeah let me
2: in there it, it just ended up non-stop caressed by phantom fingers caressed by this sort of orb
1: that would move through you it would move you could hear it moving around and you could you could feel it moving through you it, it's a very strange experience it's 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 not like being touched mm-hmm. by anything corporeal. I suppose it could be unsettling if you're, if you're not expecting it. But.
3: Nudity seems to be a very key part of a lot of your works, both for the participants and and for yourself, right? With Kick was performed nude, Stress yeah. Chamber, yeah. Uh, Voice Contact, Maze for women only. Uh, for, yeah, for women only. There, there's a big portion of your works that involve nudity. What is it about nudity that, that finds its way into your work time and time again?
1: For me, the nudity usually involved performing the Riken exercises. And uh, as a therapy exercise, this, this uh, it, now it's since called bioenergetics, but um, it's important. It's all. It it was always important to practice this, uh, to to perform this this exercise without any clothing to restrict movement of the body, movement of energy within the body. So that's why these performance, the 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 kick performances were all performed new because the the exercise really required. And what happened when those, or in in each kick performance, that I would lose control of of myself, uh, certainly of the body, and I would end up uh, being sort of, Manipulated by some sort of force outside of, of certainly outside of me. Also outside, outside, put it that way. And then the the when this was witnessed by an audience, the the energy coming from the audience would come through me out to this sort of force, and this force would come through me into the audience. So then it it was. To get to that place, it was important to be nude and to let this energy sort of move as it as it chose to move. Very often, it would mean that I would be sort of the exercise starts when you're lying on your back with your knees up, your feet flat on the ground, your hands out, stretched out, and I would start there, and then. uh, from photographs that I've seen of the performances, I would be somehow uh, elevated, like this distance—a distance of maybe what is that? Like maybe eighteen inches off the ground. And I did. I I still don't know how I managed to do it. How how it was possible to do it, but uh, from photos I've seen of of, of the performance when the when the performance was done, I was doing this. So again, uh, to have that kind of energy flowing through me back and forth, it was important for me to be nude. It was um. It's not to be exhibitionist it's to make this situation possible
3: and then to see what happens well in regards to other things like maze or or voice contact that's that's putting the the other participants sort of in and yourself in a state of vulnerability as well yeah do you find that that opens people up to something you're trying to encourage them to experience is that vulnerability
1: sometimes each performance that i've done is to see what would happen and that's why they're not repeated uh with the exception of kick but kick was done uh the same sort of exercise was done in a, a wide variety of different places so in a way it was like doing the the exercise for the first time every time it was done but then uh, Performances like the uh, like maze, like uh, voice contact, it it, uh, it became unnecessary to do it anymore because I felt like I had sort of learned what I was hoping to learn. Yeah, yeah, and that there's a, there's this risk. Uh, of doing things that get this reputation of being provocative or controversial. When a performance is done, in order to be controversial or provocative just for the sake of being provocative, it becomes a sort of carnival act. It becomes something that people expect. It becomes something that people begin to see as a form of entertainment. And that's the last thing I'm interested in. I'm, I'm not in any way interested in, in doing that, being that, um, listen to what she wants. Listen to uh, her sort of inspiration and, uh, what to explore and how to do that. Uh, and it, it, sometimes it means making music. Sometimes it means making films. Sometimes it means making objects. Sometimes it means sewing, making portraits of people, uh, that they can wear.
0: What is the muse telling you these days? What are you currently working on or looking to work on
1: the performance that I'm doing on Saturday is a concert that starts with a, with a song. The title is solitary, um, like solitary confinement, uh, when someone is, uh, imprisoned either in an institution or imprisoned by someone who is, uh, uh, like keeping someone trapped in a room, Uh, just uh, exploring the sense of being alone and not fearing that, accepting being alone, and really sort of using that situation Again, as a kind of portal, as a as a way to explore um, what you find, what you, what your mind creates.
0: And you said it's going to start with a with a song, and then and what else do you have planned for it?
1: Well, um, it it starts with a song of, about an entity that comes through the window, and you and and there is this sort of this very sort of sexual experience with this uh, phantom. And then uh, it goes into this uh, long kind of drone that becomes more and more and more and more and more complex uh, multi-tonal. It turns into this kind of if it works, I hope it works It it will turn into this kind of uh, atmosphere, this kind of environment that you just occupy. And um, I hope that it's possible to just sort of, if you're listening, to sort of forget where you are, forget what's going on around you and just sort of uh, go into yourself, use it as a way to go into yourself.
0: Excellent. And where is this being performed?
1: In Copenhagen in a place called Mayhem.
3: Oh, I've been there. (laughs) Nice venue.
0: Very cool. Mm -hmm. Very cool. So that will have already happened by the time this episode comes out. So hopefully someone who saw that got to write us, let us know how it went. This sounds amazing. (laughs)
3: Yes, please. Yes, please. You mentioned uh, sewing and when I saw your show in, in 2018, you had uh, some paintings and some some fashion pieces, pieces of clothing that you were you're working on.
1: A, dr- a wedding dress that was splattered with blood.
3: And there were also paintings uh, utilizing sewage from the property you were living on?
1: Mold. Um, well, one of them was uh, from, it was a tablecloth from my third wedding. And and the, the thing that Melissa always used to say was, it's all good. And I used the tablecloth, the sort of wine-stained tablecloth from that wedding to write, it's all good, it will all sued. Another one was an antique linen bed sheet that was made for, uh, how can I say, bourgeoisie houses, let's say. There's embroidery, the, the initials of the owner are embroidered in, in this sheet. So it was priceless at one time. And then on using this raw sewage, I wrote uh, Fear of Life. And on another one, La Vita Bella. Life is, life is good. Yeah. Written in raw sewage. The, uh, you mentioned uh, this new work. Right after Mayhem, I go to a, a, a festival in Aarhus. And there uh, there will be a concert there. I'm playing a, a piece called Decadence. But I'm also setting up an installation that was made with the sewing machine uh, called Patchwork. It's an anarchist flag that has red and black uh, with discarded lingerie sewn onto it. Use women's underwear and men's underwear. And with the men's underwear, there's... uh, there, I spray painted uh, things like sloth, And anyway, these, these are all sort of attached with the sewing machine onto this big banner. The, uh, there's a soundtrack for that. The soundtrack is a, uh, it's a recording of uh, Ketchak. Ketchak is also called Monkey Chant which is uh, a, a ritual that is done in Bali, in Indonesia. Uh, and when I was working on that, I met somebody who grew up in Bali and was very familiar with all of these different rituals. And she sort of, again, opened my mind, to what these what these rituals are re- are about, according to the people who are making the ritual. For me, ketchup is this very sexual energy that uh, has a very uh, strong connection to this sort of anarchistic libidinal drive that people who are young adults uh up until get to pretty much my age are dominated by or are, are controlled by, totally controlled by this ketchup sound. Do you know what it is? I'll imitate it. Imagine a whole room of people, like easily 30, 40, 50 people all together going a mass of people doing this.
3: That sounds wild.
1: It's amazing. It's totally amazing. And I'm now beginning to find out what that means to the people who are actually doing it. And it's, it has no connection to what I'm using it for, for this installation. The person who told me, who lived in, in Indonesia, her mother still lives there, and she invited me to go with her when she goes to visit her mother in Bali in February. Well, I would go to study this. To to find out firsthand what this is about, to participate if it's possible.
0: Heck yeah! Incredible. (laughs) I mean, look, we've gone from the '70s all the way up to the future, 2023. We're already got plans for 2023. Many
2: plans. This,
0: I mean, this has been this has been incredible, and obviously, there's so much to talk about, and hopefully, we're gonna get to do it in person. Possibly in a, in 2023. It's that's that's the yeah. that's the rumor right now. We won't we <laughs> won't uh, you know not you know we'll wait till everything gets set before anything gets you know fully discussed. But well,
1: the date is set. The date is six May.
0: All right, all right. Well, we know that this has been incredible.
1: Thank you so much.
2: Thank you. This has been great fun. You've been listening to Noise Extra. Noise Extra is brought to you by Chondritic Sound, a home to noise artists for over 17 years, by Verdant Weapons, maker of quality contact microphones and noise devices, and by our Patreon supporters. You can find our Patreon at patreon.com noiseextra and your support really helps. You can find us on Instagram at noise extra, on the web at NoiseExtra.com, one E in those, and on Twitter at noise extra, with three A's at the end. Thank you for listening to us, and to noise.